In just a minute, I want to show you a video clip. Uh, it's of one of Aesop's fables. And so the video clip's only a couple of years old, but it is telling the story of a fable from uh, thousands of years ago. And the fable is entitled Hercules and the Lazy Man. So watch the clip, and then we're going to talk about it uh, soon one as it's done. This parable or fable is probably about 2,000 years old. There's another one that's about 2,600 years old that uh, Aesop makes the same point uh, in sort of Greek. It's the gods help those who help themselves. But those are some of the fountainheads of this idea which is so prevalent in the world today that God helps those who help themselves. You find it not just uh, in Western culture. Uh, There's also a statement in the Quran Uh, which is relatively similar. It's in Surah 13. And there it says, Indeed, Allah will not change the position of a people until they change what is in themselves. Same idea, that God helps those who help themselves. Now that exact formulation, God helps those who help themselves, uh, we trace back to a man named Algernon Sidney in England in the 1600s. We know it in America this way because of Ben Franklin, uh, who sort of communicated it to us in Poor Richard's Almanac. God helps those who help themselves. So widespread and prevalent is this idea in America today that one recent survey uh, found that 80% of people think that's in the Bible and think that's a biblical concept. But so far from being in the Bible, the passage we're going to look at today in Isaiah 30 actually contradicts this completely. You see, the idea that God helps those who help themselves is very relevant for us today. If you were here last week, we talked about the fact that uh, there are many of us, if not most of us, who have loved ones who seem to be on the wrong path, heading away from the Lord or making poor decisions. And immediately the thought comes to mind, what do I need to do to help them get back to the right path? And if you think, and I think, that God helps those who help themselves, we better get going. We better put our shoulder to the wheel and we better lift this wagon up and we better go find that person and bring them back to the Lord. Of course, it's a much broader question than just about those that we love who may have walked away from the Lord. If you're struggling at your job right now, and every day when you go in, it's a burden and a difficulty, you're faced with a question. Should I just pray and wait and see if God's going to do something? Or should I polish up my resume and send it out to some people and start doing some networking? If God helps those who help themselves, I better get moving. If you're trying to save for retirement, if you think, you know what, maybe I should just pray. Maybe I'll pray and that when we get there, all the plans and the money and whatever will be there. Or am I supposed to get busy? Should I not be working and should I not have an advisor and, and get all of the plans made for those kinds of things? 
if you're interested in getting married? Do you just sit around and pray and wait for God to bring you a spouse or are you supposed to go out there and try to make it happen and date somebody and see if this is uh, something that might be a, a good thing, might be from the Lord? This is a wide-ranging question in all the areas of life. What responsibility is God's and what responsibility is ours? God helps those who help themselves is one way of answering that tension. It essentially says, well, it starts with us and God comes along and helps us in what we're doing. Isaiah 30 presents a very different picture of how to live in the tension between what is God doing and what are we supposed to do. So what I'd like to invite you to do is to take a Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 30. And we're going to look at chapters 30 and 31 together. Isaiah 30 is page 577 in the church Bibles. We're mostly going to be in Isaiah 30, but Isaiah 31 is about the same issue. While you're turning, let me tell you just a, a little bit about the historical context behind Isaiah 30 and 31. The great thing about Isaiah and the great thing about the whole Bible is, is that you don't have to know the historical context in order for God to speak directly to you because this is written for us today in our context. But sometimes understanding what's going on in the historical context can help us to understand what it is God is saying to us today. And the context in Isaiah 30 is not really brought out, but it's behind the scenes. To understand it, we start first back earlier in Isaiah. And you may remember when we were in Isaiah 8, for example, uh, that there was an issue going on in Judah at the time. The nation of Israel, Israel and Judah at this point are two separate nations. The nation of Israel and the nation of Syria had formed an alliance against Judah. Isaiah is writing to Judah. And they formed a military alliance and they're going to come and attack Judah. Ahaz is king of Judah at the time. Isaiah's the prophet. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, don't be afraid. Even though Syria and the ten tribes in the north, Israel, have formed this alliance, they will not be victorious. Put your trust in God. Ahaz chooses not to put his trust in God. Instead, he puts his trust in the Assyrian Empire, not Syria, but the Assyrian Empire. And he pays a bunch of money to Assyria to come and rescue him from Syria and Israel. God is discouraged, disappointed, and frustrated by this. And he says, look, if you really think that Assyria is your savior and Assyria is your rescuer, I'm going to tell you what will happen. Years from now, Assyria will come and invade this land. That's where we are in Isaiah 30. Ahaz is no longer king. We've moved forward a generation. His son Hezekiah is king. But what we find out in Isaiah 30 and 31 is that some of that same pride that influenced Ahaz and his leadership is now in the leadership of the people of Judah during Hezekiah's time. And although Hezekiah is not mentioned by name here, the idea is, is that in Judah's leadership at the time, as Assyria is coming to invade, they think to themselves, we got to go to Egypt 
to get help with Assyria. Now, for us today, this is how it still works. If you turn to Assyria to save you from Syria, you're going to have to try to turn to Egypt to save you from Assyria. If you turn to technology to try to save you from idolatry with food, at some point you're going to have to turn to something to save you from technology. If you turn to human affirmation to rescue you from the problems of discouragement in this world, at some point you're going to have to turn to something to rescue you from idolatry of human affirmation. This is how it works. The trouble of Syria and Israel they turn to Assyria. Now Assyria is causing them problems. They want to turn to Egypt. And so God launches his complaint. Chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. And then also we'll look at 31, verse 1. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. Turn over to Isaiah 31, verse 1, and hear a very similar accusation. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitudes of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Back to Isaiah 30. God's frustrated here with the people of Judah, but it's very important that we understand what the charge is that he's laying at their feet. The charge is not that they're going to Egypt. Going to Egypt for help is not inherently right or inherently wrong. There are some stories in the Bible where going to Egypt is the right thing to do. Jacob and his sons, when there's a famine in the land years before the book of Isaiah... They go down to Egypt, and we are told this was from the Lord. The going to Egypt was God's guidance and direction in their life. Likewise, Mary and Joseph, when their baby Jesus is in danger of being killed by Herod, they flee to Egypt, and this is from the Lord. It's a good thing. On the other hand, Abraham goes to Egypt when there's a famine in the land, and this is not from the Lord. Isaac, his son, when there's a famine in the land, he makes plans to go to Egypt. That's what his dad did. And God appears to him and says, don't go. That's a bad thing for you to go to Egypt. In Jeremiah, when the issue is not the Assyrian Empire, but the Babylonian Empire, again, the children of Israel make plans to go to Egypt, and God shows up and says, don't do it. So the charge is not going to Egypt. Egypt is not inherently evil or inherently good. In other words, we're not talking here about the kinds of things like sexual immorality or dishonoring parents. Those are always wrong. What we're talking about here is that the people of Judah 
We're making a decision. And it's not that the decision was something that was inherently evil. Sometimes going to Egypt is from the Lord, and sometimes it's not. So instead of this being the kind of decision whereby, well, should I engage in sexual immorality? Should I engage in behavior that's dishonoring to parents? That's always wrong. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that Israel has made a decision that is not inherently wicked in and of itself. So what is the charge? Verse 30. To those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit. Verse 2. Who go down to Egypt, that's not the charge. The charge is without consulting me or those who look to Egypt, but pay no attention and do not seek the Lord. The charge is not that they went to Egypt. The charge is they never consulted God about it. What we're talking about here are the decisions that you and I might make about whether to look for a new job. That's not inherently wicked or inherently good. The decisions you and I might make about who to marry, the decisions we might make about how much money to save, these kinds of decisions, that's what's going on in Isaiah 30 and 31, and God is frustrated with the people of Judah because they're making these decisions without talking to him, without consulting him. He's like, you've done these things. You've made an alliance. You've gone to Egypt. You've made your plans. But you never asked me what I thought. That's the charge. The charge is not so much what decision was made, but how it was made and why it was made. That's the issue at hand. Well, God's charge against the people of Judah continues through chapter 30 until you get to verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, and the threat of five you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. God says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. It's the exact opposite of God helps those who help themselves. See, the problem with God helps those who help themselves is it puts us into the center of the situation. God will only help me if I help myself, which means I gotta first take my problem and I gotta figure out my solution and I gotta go about working at that solution and if at some point I get into some trouble, like I can't lift the wagon wheel, maybe Hercules will show up and help me. God says, no, 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 no. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. 
Take, for example, a high school student who may be thinking about where to go to college or even if to go to college. The God helps those who helps themselves is so fundamental to who we are. It's so widespread in this world in all sorts of different cultures that what do we do when it's time to pick a college? Well, we make a list. Where are the colleges we might want to go to? We then plan visits to those colleges and we go and see what they're like. We talk to guidance counselors about what do you need to get into these various colleges. We see the test scores that are required and if we don't have that test score, we take practice tests and we take prep classes to try to get our test scores up high enough. If we can't get them up high enough, we pray and ask God to get us in anyway. We look and see how much it costs to go to that school. We fill out financial aid forms. We apply for student, uh, for help, for scholarships. If none of that works, we pray, and then we take out a loan. Because we're convinced God helps those who help themselves. But God says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. Now, I know your question, same one I have. Well, are you saying we're not supposed to fill out college applications? Are you telling us we shouldn't have a savings plan for retirement? Are you saying we shouldn't put together a resume and look for a new job? Are you saying that if we have a wayward child or someone that we love who's walking away, we shouldn't do anything? We should just sit around and wait? I'd like to answer those questions for you, but I'm not going to. And here's why not. Because they still have us at the center of them. We're still thinking God helps those who help themselves. And we're still wanting an answer to the question. Just tell me what's God going to do and what I'm supposed to do. Tell me how the labor's supposed to be divided. They're valuable questions. But that's not what Isaiah 30 does. So what I want to do is just walk through what God does do in Isaiah 30, after he tells us that it's in repentance and rest, where is our salvation? Verse 18, so verses 16 and 17 will say that when we go our own way, it doesn't go very well. But look at what God says in verse 18. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. God's response to our questions, well, what am I supposed to do, is, I love you. That's his response. God longs to be gracious to us. What we expect at this point is anger. What we expect is frustration. What we expect God to say is, okay, fine. Go to Egypt. But what he says is, I long to be gracious to you. And so what follows in Isaiah 30 are not, hey, get with the program. Here's some stuff you need to do. Instead, what follows are four promises from God. Four promises from God spoken into a situation where people didn't bother to ask God's opinion before they made a decision. And if you're here and like me, have at times maybe even currently, made some decisions without consulting the Lord, I want you to hear these four promises. Now, before I get to them, let me just say, 
These four promises are promises to those who believe in Jesus, meaning those who are Christians. If you're not yet a Christian, please hear these four promises as an invitation. This is how God would like to engage with you. Okay, four promises. Promise number one, second half of verse 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. God's first promise is he will show us compassion. This is the promise he makes to you and I after we've not bothered to consult him about the decisions we've made. He says, I'm going to show you compassion. Consider, for example, the young woman who decides she desperately wants to be married. And so she picks out a guy that she wants to marry and she's going to start dating him. She's not paid any attention to Isaiah 30, which says you ought to consult the Lord. She's sure she knows this is the guy for me. What's God's promise to her? Not anger, but compassion. God might bring along a group of friends that say to her, hey, look, this isn't the right guy for you. That's God's compassion. God might choose to say, well, you didn't ask my opinion, but I'm going to choose to bless this relationship because I'm being compassionate. He does do that. God may bring along the guy he would have chosen so she can see what, he's, what she's missing. That's God's compassion. God can also cause that relationship to fall apart. And even though it hurts, it's God's compassion. God's promise is, even though you and I are so prone to think, well, God only helps those who help themselves, I better get after this thing. When we find ourselves in a mess, God's response is compassion. He longs to be gracious to us. He longs to help us. So promise number one, God will be compassionate. Number two, verse 19. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. I love that. Do you hear that phrase? As soon as he hears, he will answer you. You see, we make our own decisions. We pick our school or we pick our uh, person to date, or we pick our retirement plan, or our job, or our ways to fix our relationship with a friend, or whatever it may be, and we get in the middle of it, and we figure out, you know what, I'm not sure I knew what I was doing. And God says, when you get to the point that you want to cry out for help, I will hear and respond immediately, immediately. Now, does that mean that God just shows up and fixes everything immediately? No, that's not what he says. He might. What this is talking about is he immediately restores the relationship between you and him. See, what we don't realize, when we refuse to ask his opinion, when we refuse to consult him, when we refuse to think about him in the decisions that we're making in life, about who we're going to marry, about where we're going to work, about what kinds of things we're going to be involved in, when we refuse to, we're essentially cutting him out of our lives. 
He is a heavenly father who says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him come to me. I'll give him advice. I'll gladly lead him in the right path. And when we say, no, thank you, what we've essentially done is cut God out of our lives, which is why when you try to make a decision without engaging with God, sometimes it can be stressful. Sometimes you can lack peace. Sometimes there's no joy in it. It's because we've cut ourselves off from the source of joy and peace and wisdom and love. And God says, the moment you realize it, there's no 30-day waiting period. The moment you cry out, he answers immediately. Not to fix everything. That takes some time. If you've gotten involved in a relationship you shouldn't be involved in, it takes time for God to untangle some of those emotions. But what he does do immediately is he restores the relationship. There's no waiting period. He's like, as soon as you let me back in, I'm back in. So promise two, he answers immediately. Promise three, and I think this one's a doozy. Verses 20 and 21. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, meaning he allows us when we make our own choices, he allows things to not all go all that well. Even though that happens, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Did you hear that? Please don't underestimate the magnificence of this promise. God is saying, you will hear a voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. And one of the really cool things about this promise, it says whether you go to the right or the left. What's not clear is, do you hear the voice before you go to the right or the left or after you're going to the right or the left? Sometimes both. Sometimes God tells us things before we make the decision. And sometimes we're just led by the Spirit and we make the decision. You're walking on the path and you hear a voice saying, this is the right path. It's an amazing promise from God. Sometimes we need that kind of blatant guidance up front to say, look, I don't know which way to go. You tell me and God says, I'll tell you. And sometimes we get started on a path because we think we're following the Spirit. And God says, all along the way, I'll be whispering behind you. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is where you're supposed to be. It's a beautiful, amazing promise from God. It does beg the million-dollar question, which is, well, how will you know what God's voice is? Let me say two things about that. First, in my experience, my dealing with the scriptures and with other people, I just want to say, you're probably not going to hear an audible voice, but what you will hear is God speaking in a variety of different ways. And so just keep your eyes open and your ears open because when it says you'll hear a voice, there is a whole bunch of different ways that God communicates with his people. For example, if you're trying to figure out what college you're supposed to go to, you might find that one of your close friends at church is also applying to the same college you were thinking about applying to and that might be a way that God is saying, this is the path, walk in it. You're thinking about somebody that you want to date and you've been praying about it and whenever that person comes to mind, you just have this strange peace that somehow this is the right thing. That can be God's voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. 
You accept a ministry position or you're a volunteer to lead a small group or be part of a prayer ministry or work in the children's ministry and you show up and you're working and you're like, boy, this is frustrating. But all along the way, you keep getting these notes of affirmation or something to encourage you. You're on the right path. Keep going. You're thinking about what should I do about retirement? I, I, maybe I need some sort of plan. And all of a sudden, God has a financial plan or show up in your small group to join your small group. That can be God saying, here's the path, walk in it. You might find that this week, five different people mention a person's name to you, independent of one another. And you decide, I better send that person a note. That can be God saying, this is the path, walk in it. You show up to service one Sunday morning and you've just said to your spouse, hey, look, we should be doing more in our retirement years. There's more that we can offer. What should be involved? And in that morning, the announcement is get involved in the children's ministry. That can be God saying, this is the path, walk in it. So the first thing I want you to know is he talks and guides and leads in lots of different ways. But the second thing I want you to know about that million dollar question, how will you know? is even more important. See, the problem with God helps those who help themselves so ingrained in us that we think the only way I'm going to hear from God is if I figure out how to hear from God. <laughs> and what I want to say is, please just hear the promise and believe it. What God says is, whether you turn to the right or left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And I know we want to answer the question, how? I just simply want you to hear the promise of God. You will hear a voice. I don't know how. I don't know what he's going to do. I can give you examples I just did. I have no idea if he will use any of those examples or different ones. But what I can tell you is he will get it across to you and you'll know. And the great amazing promise of God is, it's almost like he's saying, look, just trust me. You'll hear a voice. And I'm not going to tell you right now how it's going to come. But you will hear a voice. That's why this promise is so beautiful. It doesn't say, if you do this, if you do this, if you... you'll hear a voice. You will hear a voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. Fourth promise verses 23 to 26, and also verse 29. He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground, and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash, spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. The moon will shine like the sun, and the sunlight will be seven times brighter like the light of seven full days. When the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he afflicted. Verse 29. And you will sing, and on, as on the night you celebrate a holy festival, your hearts will rejoice as when people playing pipes go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. Promise number four, God will lead you to a land of blessing and you and I will praise him for it. The promise of God in the face of refusing to consult him, he says, but I'm going to lead you to a place of blessing. Why should he do this? Because he longs to be compassionate and gracious to us.
so far from God helps those who help themselves. God says, despite the fact that you tried to help yourself and messed everything up, I'm going to be compassionate to you. I'm going to respond immediately. I'm going to guide you. And I'll lead you to a place of blessing. See, the problem with God helps those who help themselves is we think we're the ones who've got to decide what's supposed to happen. If you listen carefully in all of these promises, there are things for us to do. God says, I'm going to be compassionate to you. Our job is to wait. Did you hear that? God says, I'll respond. Well, clearly our job is to pray. God says, I'll guide. Well, clearly our job is to listen. God says, I'll bless. Well, clearly our job is to praise. There is something for us to do. But the problem with the original question is, how do we divide up the labor? What does God do and what do we do? It's the wrong question. The question is not, which is God's part and which is our part? Sometimes it's good to go to Egypt. Sometimes it's not good to go to Egypt. The question is, who's leading and who's following? That's the issue. And what Judah was saying to God was, hey, we're going to go to Egypt. You should come along with us. And what we say to God is, hey, this is the woman I want to marry. You should come with us. This is the job I want to have. God, you should come with me. God, this is the college that I'm going to. You should come with me because we're hoping that if we get into that marriage or into that job or into that college and things go wrong, well, at least he's got our back and he can help us if we can't get the wagon wheel out of the rut. And God says, that's the wrong formulation. God's saying, why don't you come with me? I've got someone for you to marry. Come with me. I've got a job for you. Come with me. I've got a retirement plan for you. Come with me. I've got a ministry for you to be involved with. Come with me. I've got a way for us to reach that wayward loved one. Come with me. And the crux of the matter is not who does what. The crux of the matter is who's leading and who's following. And the charge in Isaiah 30 that resonates and hits home with me is lots of these decisions. Not talking about sexual immorality, dishonoring parents, lying, those sorts of things that are black and white. God's already talking about the decisions of life. For lots of those, the charge hits home. You know what? I've been trying to lead, and I've been asking him to follow. And the good news of Isaiah 30, you've probably done it too, but God's not angry with you. God's not waiting to punish you. God's not saying, ha ha, I told you so. God longs to be compassionate and gracious to us. God says, I will bless you. God says, as soon as you confess it, I will restore you and forgive you. God says, you will hear my voice. And I'll tell you, this is the way to go. And God promises, I will lead you to a place of blessing. You and I, we can keep fighting. We can keep trying to be the leader. At some point, surrender. All he's trying to do is take you to a place that is beyond anything you could imagine. Full of grace and mercy and love and joy and peace. The question is, will you let him lead?